0: Test, test, one, two, three.
1: Test, test, under, What's your name? Henry Spratt. How old are you? Ten.
0: If you could vote, who would you vote for?
1: Jugmeet Singh, my mom.
0: Wise choice. Welcome to the Docket, episode ninety-eight. My name is Michael Spratt, and I'm Louise Arbour. Hi, Louise. How are you? Hi, Michael. Happy Thanksgiving. I know it was a great Thanksgiving. Fantastic. I made two pies.
1: All right, bragging. You actually made the entire dinner.
0: That's true. That's true. You bought it. <laughs> I just uh, made that's it. also true. <laughs> um, what have you been up to, other than eating my pies?
1: Actually, I just came back from uh, New York for the Global Commission on Drug
0: Policies. Good time.
1: Good time, yeah. Good spirit, good uh, uh, people much more attentive. And, you know, what happened in Canada helps some way.
0: Yeah, I'm glad this federal election, there's been some talk about decriminalizing all drugs and safe supply. I mean, not talks from the conservatives or the liberals, but the Green and the NDP parties have both been talking about some very different drug policy that I think is probably in line with what the Global Commission is recommending.
1: Very much so, like essentially moving to a public health grounding of policies rather than repression and the so-called war on drugs but the interesting part it seems to me which i stressed with my interlocutors internationally is that there's no movement in canada to reverse you know there's there was a lot of fear-mongering about oh legalization of cannabis you know carnage on the highways of the nation will follow and every youth will now become an addict all kinds of hysteria in some small quarters But now, a year into it, in the middle of a federal election, if anything, the voices that are heard are the progressive ones, and nobody's seriously thinking they're going to win an election by saying, let's go back to the dark days. So that's in itself interesting.
0: Yeah, I think um, Andrew Scheer made some mention of not rolling back the legalization of marijuana, and... You know, the whole safe consumption sites and harm reduction, it seems to be sort of less of the fear mongering that we saw in the dying days of the Harper government, where they, you know, compared it to safe consumption sites okay. to like heroin dens on the corner of suburban streets and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's incrementally getting better, but I think we need to do better than incrementally when there's an opioid crisis and people no, that, are dying and our yeah, justice system is straining. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: But anyway, enough of drugs.
0: Enough about drugs. Um, We'll see if we can keep the background noise to a minimum. We've banished the children to their rooms. And the dogs. And Emily's around somewhere. I think she gets her one hour of rest before she's back out on the campaign trail in the last week of the election. Um, But you and I both independently on Friday night of the long weekend saw a Globe and Mail uh, headline. um, And I'll just read the headline. Supreme Court rules Canadian judges have been too soft on punishment for 30 years. Right. Can't be right.
1: Yeah, we both, I said, have you seen that? Now have you read the case? No, let's have a look. What is this? So we did.
0: And I think we'll conclude, we'll come back and look at it, but I think we'll conclude that the headline was possibly slightly misleading. Um, But this all comes from a recent Supreme Court of uh, Canada decision released um, just last week, uh, a split decision of the Supreme Court, of 5-4 uh, decision. Uh, the case Not is... Not
1: 5-4. And to me, oh. it's a big issue. 4-3. Four, 4-3. Three. Four, three. Seven bench. And, oh, I just assumed. And I'll say at the outset, I won't say at the outset because we have to get into the case before I say at the outset.
0: So this is the case <laughs> of uh, Poulin, who was an elderly gentleman when he was sentenced um, he was found guilty in 2016 of historic sexual offenses that happened between 1979 and 1987. And the interesting part about his case is that when the offenses were committed between those dates, um, the the punishment was, you know, a custodial sentence. Uh, in the interim, in the intervening years. Conditional sentences were brought in so that those offenses were eligible for a conditional sentence. That's a a custodial sentence, but one that served in your house, like house arrest, that we normally think about. And then those conditional sentences, the availability of them were repealed by um, uh, the Harper government. And when he was sentenced in 2016, uh, those conditional sentences were gone. And so we have a case where there was one sentence when the offense was committed, there was a lesser sentence in the intervening years, and then there was another sentence uh, that was more harsh when he was actually sentenced. And the question that the Supreme Court dealt with is, what sentencing regime applies? Exactly. So the Supreme Court dealt with Section 11I of the Charter in finding out sort of which benefit the accused gets um, between these three different sentencing options. Um, Section 11 of the, uh, 11I of the Charter states that any person charged with an offense has the right if found guilty of the offense, and if the punishment for the offense has been varied between the time of commission and the time of sentencing to the benefit of the lesser punishment. And in French, Louise?
1: In French, it reads, Tout inculpé a le droit, petit i, de bénéficier de la peine la moins sévère lorsque la peine qui qui sanctionne l'infraction dont il a été déclaré coupable est modifiée entre le moment de la perpétration de l'infraction et celui de la sentence.
0: So the question that the court was dealing with is, is this section to be interpreted in a binary way in that you get the benefit of the lesser sentence between the sentence that was available when you committed the offence or the sentence available when you were sentenced?
1: Yeah, you have to pick the lesser
0: Of, of those two. The one at commission of the offence or the one at sentence. So that's the binary interpretation. Yeah. Or, and and that would not include, in this case, the conditional sentence that came and went in between, or is it sort of a broad global right to just the lesser punishment that existed anywhere in between those two points?
1: In between, as the text says, but we'll get to that. But yeah, it's basically the the other option, the the so-called global right would be to have the benefit of the most lenient sentence that was ever available in law between the time that you committed the offense throughout the period up to sentencing.
0: And unsurprisingly, from the headline in the Globe and Mail, the court found, the majority of the court found that it was this binary option that you just look at these two endpoints and you can ignore anything that came in between.
1: That's right. Which, and now maybe I'll make this preliminary (laughs) remark, which, which is that for the Supreme Court of Canada to overturn essentially 30 years of pretty well unanimous, throughout Canada, appellate court decisions which had interpreted it the other way, that is, you look at the global period of sentencing, I think it sets a pretty high bar for the court to, uh, particularly sitting seven and being divided for three. So you have four judges out of the nine in the Supreme Court who overruled 30 years of criminal jurisprudence on sentencing and constitutional interpretation of rights on sentencing, whereby the the courts had been, it seems virtually unanimous. And f- furthermore, just to add a little spin, in a case that actually moot because the accused died in, yeah. in the meantime. But that's uh, this is nowhere near nor there. But it just adds to the the significance maybe. And I I would suggest that. For the court to do that in that kind of circumstances, I suggest it would set the bar pretty high for the persuasiveness of the analysis.
0: And I think the reason why they were sitting two judges short is because uh, the Chief Justice, Justice McLaughlin, I think, was... Perhaps... Well, I can't speculate. Came, I mean, just
1: his... It yeah. came
0: like, in the middle of... I, I think it, it came in the middle of when she might not have been sitting or... That it was heard. I, I don't think know. it really
1: matters to speculate. You know, the bottom line still is that you have a bench of seven, which you know, had it been unanimous, it's one thing. But when you see a bench of seven that splits four three, on an issue, on a and reversing, a, you know, a long, long series of unanimous mm-hmm. jurisprudence, it it, it immediately it's quite intriguing. So you think, well, these for thirty years, these appellate courts must have been way out in the left field, and it must be blatantly obvious that this is wrong. Well, and the majority actually is,
0: says that. I mean, this is a decision written by Justice Sheila Martin, concurred with by uh, Wagner, Moldaver and Cote. The dissent uh, is written by Justice Karika sanitz with Abella and Brown concurring. And essentially, the majority says, they recognize that there's been all these decisions, but they just sort of say they got it wrong. Obviously wrong Yeah. for the last, last three decades.
1: And again, just just to add to context a little bit at the very end of the reasons for judgment of the majority there's just an additional little point which i find quite intriguing which is that the crown says if you're going to agree with us essentially on this binary position you know it would be really nice if at the end point you took not sentencing at the end point but charge because if the law was charged was changed between charge and sentencing we're worried there could be a lot of unfairness. So this is even uh, the Crown saying, strictly speaking, the way you're going, we concede. So now, how could you fix that? In the charter, it said sentencing, not charge. So you'd need a constitutional amendment. That's easy to do. Or you would need, as it's hinted, at some point later in the future, use another right to come at it through some other kind of fairness. The simple way to have fixed it would have been to agree with the dissenting opinion that everything is open but that's not the way.
0: It sort of going. seemed that way when I was reading the the majority's decision. It seemed that a lot of the arguments and let we can go through them maybe now, but a lot of them seemed a little bit strained and like when I initially when I sort of thought about it, I could see the attraction of the majority's sort of decision. I mean, when you're, you know, committing an offense, Or when you're charged with like around that time you know there's this transactional cost benefit general deterrence thing that we all think about or specific deterrence thing where you know the sentence might or the available sentence might play a role in deciding if you commit the offense i mean i think anyone that has done criminal law knows that that those sort of transactional
1: theoretical but doesn't happen in
0: the real world but fine And then, you know, for the sentencing, like, it only seems fair that you're sentenced with, you know, what society has evolved to think that that offense is worth. And that might have changed. Yeah, if it's more lenient. If it's more lenient. And, I mean, that might have changed. So I could sort of see the attraction of using those points. And, you know, just because, especially for these sexually based offenses where they can go undetected for a long time... Just because there might have been a small blip in the middle, where you know an even lower sentence was imposed, why should you get the benefit of that? And if it had nothing to do at all with your specific act and your specific sentencing, but then the more I read the majority's decision, they convinced me more and more that they were wrong.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. It, you know, when you look at the reasons for judgment, uh, certainly on, from the eyes of, of people like me who have written some. It doesn't matter what your process is. Certainly in my case, uh, writing was always a process of discovery. I mean, it has often happened to me that my first impression of the case, frankly, even after hearing, as a trial judge for instance, coming out thinking, I'm pretty, yeah, I really think it goes this way. But then you'll hear judges say, but it doesn't write. You start writing, you start looking at precedent, and all of a sudden you say, wait a minute, it's just not going where I thought the logical conclusion would be. This case reads to me not as a process of discovery, but as a process of, I don't want to be pejorative, but either the more charitable way would be demonstration, the least charitable would be justification or rationalization after the fact. It's just, there are too many hurdles that are dismissed. You could dismiss one, a statutory interpretation. You could dismiss a little vagueness on the history of the, but cumulatively, Mm -hmm. when you look at in my opinion, some small weaknesses in every step of the analysis, you have to pause and say, wait a minute, I think I'm going the wrong way here. And unfortunately, I think the dissenting opinion is not very elaborate.
0: Yeah, it's so not it really robust, is it? No,
1: it's. Uh, it. I think it hits a couple of issues where they, there's a strong disagreement with the majority, but it's not a step-by-step demonstration that the reasoning of the majority is actually incorrect. And I... Let's also, it's. I think it's important to concede that none of that is obvious, right? If it was blatantly obvious, well, maybe it was for 30 years to appellate courts, but when you tease the issue out, it's puzzling. And you and I, in our conversation before, actually, before I read the reasons, just asking ourselves what makes the most sense, we were both, I think, to some extent, leaning on the position of the majority, yeah, it's between the two.
0: It just seems easier to think. It's that easier. Way.
1: It looks neater, but in fact, it's not neater. It's much more difficult, and it creates, as I said, even the problem that the crown itself is worries worries about mm-hmm. at the end of the case. So, after I think we work our way through, and we could look at some of the arguments uh, on balance, I think it's at best a beef for effort.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think that starts sort of right away when the majority is talking about you know the the purpose of the charter and and how rights must be interpreted you know broadly and we have to look at the purpose and we have to give um you know the charter sort of a generous sort of interpretation and they quote some cases but they say that you know um you know when you look at the purpose like It doesn't mean generous interpretation, doesn't mean, you know, an expansive interpretation. We have to look at the purpose, which actually constrains the the generous interpretation. So it seems at the beginning, they're already trying to dial it back a bit about how broadly the Charter should apply to situations.
1: Honestly, I have to say, I find these statements of general application and intent immensely unhelpful because the words themselves are unhelpful. You know, the court distinguishes between a purposive and liberal interpretation, which is the guiding principle, as opposed to maybe a generous, lenient, and most favorable to the accused. But when you start mishmashing all these words, what's the difference between liberal, generous, purposive? Essentially, it's what you then say it is as you engage in your analysis. So you call something purposive, because you think you've detected a purpose. Well, then you you have to move on to look uh, at what the purpose is. How did you detect the purpose? Well, sometimes it's by a liberal interpretation. And how is liberal distinguishable from generous? Generous to whom? So I think at some point you just have to plunge into what it is you have to look at. The wording, the history, all the different parts. And it seems to me what best serves, at the end of the day, the interest of justice of which the interest of the accused play a large part but are not i concede certainly not the only part so you have to
0: look at the entire picture so do you want to look at yeah let's look at some of the the language there. first yeah. so they look at the majority looks at the language of section 11i and when you look at the english language it seems to me that that the plain reading says that you look at to see if the offense if the punishment for the offense has been varied between the time of the commission of the sentence and the time of commission of the offense, and you impose the lesser punishment. does that mean that you look only at the two endpoints or do you look at does between mean that you look at between those points
1: yeah. well again, I find it's only helpful to a point unless one interpretation is kind of flatly not available. So the court here put a lot of emphasis in the word between two points. I would say you could put equal emphasis to the expression has been varied between. So some activity took place between the commission of the offence and sentencing. What took place? The sentencing provisions have been varied. There was activity, the benefit the accused gets the benefit of the lesser punishment that arises from that activity. So I find it's not evident just on the language. The French text, I think, and the court sort of concedes, uh, points a little more to the global right. Uh, But again, if you really were convinced that it it was the two extremes that mattered, you might say it's not precluded.
0: And, I mean, just by definition... It seems that because we're dealing with this, of course, the sentence has been varied. That's that's why we're having this conversation in the first yeah. place. But
1: you know, if you wanted to say clearly that the accused is entitled to the lesser of either the sentence at the time of commission or the sentence at the time, uh, yeah, the, the punishment at the time of sentence, there's a million ways to say that much more clearly. For instance, you could say, if there's a difference between the sentence at the time of commission or the sentence that's now available at the time of sentencing, you clearly refer to only two points in time, he gets the benefit of the lesser one. To say if it has been varied in between, he gets the benefit of the lesser, it invites at least the possibility that it's something more than that.
0: Yeah, so I think it's a bit of a strained reading to fit this sort of binary um, interpretation into the plain wording argument. I think that much you know, it'd be much cleaner to to say that the that the the wording of Section 11I might lean towards sort of a global um, a global interpretation, but it's something that the majority has to deal with. And you know, at the end of the day, they just say, "I reject one, I prefer, prefer the other," and there isn't really robust reasons for why.
1: Well, that's why you know, and that's how it starts. And that's why, to me, it looks more like it reads more like a process of explanation or justification after having reached the conclusion than a process where the writing is a process of discovery, where you genuinely ask yourself at every step, where is this leading me to? Uh, On this, they also use the difference between the lesser offense or the least severe offense. The, the, The dissenting opinion rejects that. There's dictionary support for the availability of the word lesser when there are multiple choices, not just when it's binary. So... Again, sometimes you think, yeah, that's a good one, but it's not dispositive of of the question. You have to look at a lot of other things.
0: Yeah, it doesn't move me very much. And the next thing they they look at sort of the origin of Section 11i and, you know, interpretation of, you know, um, which I don't like this sort of like American concept of looking at like original intent and things like that. Um, It sort of falls into the same category for me where it's not very convincing. And even if it was, I don't put a a lot of importance on it because they go back and look at um, what was originally a draft document of, of the charter from 1969, which... You know, which says that, you know, the, it's the right of the person on being found guilty of an offense not to be subject to a penalty heavier than the one applicable at the time that the offense was committed, which is, I think, much more clearly would support sort of this binary definition. And, I mean, the court sets, seems to say that when you look at that, then you can see sort of the intent in Section 11i. The way that I look at it is they said it clearly before. They didn't say it clearly in the actual charter. So I don't know, either you can say that that intent must have moved over or that they moved away from that initial 1969 intent because that's not how they wrote it.
1: Yeah, I have to say, I found the treatment of the, the rooting of this principle, particularly in international human rights law, particularly unconvincing. Uh, first of all, everything, the charter, we, we tend to forget that the Charter, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom, is very rooted in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is sort of 1948. This is the, the mother of all the instruments that followed. The court doesn't refer to that, but it referred to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And somewhat bizarrely to me, it put a lot of emphasis on the European Court of Human Rights, which applies the European Convention. Now, Canada is not a party to the the European Convention, but it has acceded to the International uh, Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So the relevant document here, the most relevant document, apart from the Charter itself and its Canadian legislative history and the Interpretation Act and so on, is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, not the European jurisprudence, which is rooted in a different language. Actually, the European uh, Convention has the same language as the Universal Declaration, and is not very informative. It's really a statement of general principle that you should get the lesser punishment. The International Covenant, on the other hand, of uh, civil and political rights, to which Canada has acceded, and therefore that's part of Canadian law, and so far treaties are, is the only one that actually answers that question. And how does it answer? Well, because it adds that sentence which the court actually says you this is a little more troubling well, i think it's a little more than troubling let me just see where i wrote that down um it says hold on a second accession to the OCD. yeah it adds a sentence after the general principle that everybody has which is an offender is entitled lesser punishment it says if subsequent to the commission of the offense Provision is made by law for the imposition of a lighter penalty; the offender shall benefit thereby.
0: So it seems pretty clear that that's yes. sort of a at global any time, interpretation.
1: If subsequent to the commission of the offense, not at the time of sentencing, provision is made by law for the imposition of a lighter that lighter penalty, the offender shall benefit thereby. It's the only place where you find language that. Uh, and the and uh, Justice Martin in that she said, admittedly, this is more ambiguous. Well, if you were actually in a process of discovering what it meant, you would say, well, that's very helpful. Yeah, actually, to suggest that it opens up a choice of all the provisions in between. On that, the so I find on this international law stuff not enough emphasis on the international covenant, which is applicable in Canada, and quite a bit of emphasis or references to the International Convention, which has different language, which is neither applicable in Canada or exactly the same as Section 11i, so it doesn't really help. There's, I just want, there's another argument that I find actually very puzzling, and the minority sort of addresses it. Twice in the reasons the Court said, if we were to choose this global right, so basically you're entitled to the, the benefit of the lesser punishment, at any point in time, where there's been statutory activity between the commission of the offense and sentencing, what a job that would be for the crown and for the, the defense counsel and the court to, to examine all the legislative history and, and then debate which one is actually, in this case, more favorable to the accused.
0: Seriously? Uh, I can tell you pretty too easily much was- work?
1: It's, I it's sort of this. our
0: job and it's not a debate what's more favorable like it's it's and readily apparent what is more favorable but you
1: know the, the point is actually it's quite tricky because you know is this punishment more or less favorable to this accused? well it depends if it's punishment that is colored by whether you've committed for pre- Europe an offender you know, previous offenses there are lots of factors but that's our jobs as yeah. you know whether something is complex is not a reason to say, well, we shouldn't adopt that interpretation of the law because it's just too hard, it's too complicated and complex, and it would it would be time-consuming. Well, that's why the professionals of the justice system are there to give, give force to constitutional provisions and protection. So I find that particular part of the analysis actually quite bizarre.
0: And I don't think, th- I mean, they didn't explicitly make this argument in the majority, but... It's the flavor that I sort of got, sort of like this floodgates argument, like it could open up lesser sentences for everyone, for all offenses, but these situations don't arise very often.
1: In fact, in the review of the jurisprudence, when the court said, you know, for 30 years, Canadian courts have done that, we have to remind ourselves, we're talking about historic, so-called historic offenses. It could happen if, of course, we change government very frequently and they keep fiddling around with criminal code sentencing provisions. You could have a lot of movement. But for the most part, we're talking decades, you know, where the awareness... And most of... uh, I think the majority of these cases have been uh, sexual offences related from, you know, gross indecency at the time, the abolition of rape as such, aggravated sexual assault. So it's true, historical offences play a large part. They've also been... Uh, murder cases you know you can imagine a case for instance where somebody would have committed a murder at the time that Canada had the death penalty I forget now was it early 70s that it was formally abolished yeah as so to around there. The moratorium so say you committed a murder in 1969 where the death penalty is applicable then it is eradicated it's abolished for 30 years and then you get a government that actually because of your case there's public outrage by the time you are arrested and found and charged, and we know what the delays are in our court, it would be several years before you're actually sentenced. By the time of sentencing, the death penalty is restored. I mean, seriously, are we thinking that the fact that for 30, 40 years, it was not available? Anyway, we could spin examples at nauseam.
0: Well, and it's some of the, the hypotheticals that that actually, I think tipped me i think more into agreeing with with the minority here because i won't go through them all because they don't translate very well in the audio medium because you're talking about a and b you commit the same offense at the same time with a level three but then the punishment drops to level one the sentence a receives is a level one but then the punishment rises and to a level two and then b so i mean it's hard that way but i think there's a few good examples that show that that it should be global and And one of them, I think, comes right out of what what the majority says, because one of their arguments is, well, if the sentence decreases, like if you commit the offense and there's one sentence, and then it decreases in the interim, and then it increases again, and then, then you're sentenced at that increased offense, well, the offender could have chosen to plead guilty or to admit responsibility when it was a lower sentence if they wanted to take advantage of that. And that seemed to be not an argument that is consistent with all the other principles of, of our law.
1: Well, first of all, it seems to me it flies in the face of the presumption of innocence to suggest that, they, that people should be sitting around looking to see whether a criminal conduct that we now have to assume they've perpetrated at some point in time is moving towards a more lenient punishment and think, oh, this could be a good day where I should confess to a crime for which i've never been charged right i've may not never have been in even investigated first of all it's absurd in reality i can't imagine anybody would do that but it also it seems to me flies in the face of the presumption of innocence which exists certainly before your charge and and also after your charge you have the benefit of the presumption of innocence so and that's a thing that troubled the crown towards the end because they said what if an accused sort of cooperates and comes forward and and assists. And we know what the delays are. The fact that it's hooked to sentencing, which could be very delayed. Even post-charge, you can have, um, you know, if you were, say, acquitted, and the Crown appeals, or convicted, and you appeal, and then you get a new trial. So from the original charge to the ultimate sentencing, there could be changes in, in the law, and you would have cooperated and so on. And the Crown said, oh, We should have a way of rewarding that, not further punishing that. So, and the the, very simple way to do that is that you have the benefit of the lesser punishment that would have been available at any time uh, in between. And again, it seems to me we need to keep stressing the availability of the the lesser punishment is not the same as its suitability.
0: Right, just because something's available doesn't
1: mean you're entitled, definitely, for instance, in this case to a conditional sentence it only means that under the court's interpretation you can't even make the argument that an 82-year-old should get a conditional sentence now in this case reasonable people may disagree as to whether that's what he should have been given
0: well and the majority you know? sort of disagreed, like sort of brought that up at the end they said even under our interpretation, even saying that a conditional sentence wasn't available because we were going with this binary option, there were other sentencing options available that could have achieved the same end, like suspending sentence and not sentencing him to jail at all, which seems even less satisfactory than imposing a conditional sentence. Well, that,
1: yeah, because this one would have been even more lenient. And the minority, on the other hand, saying it's not because we say a conditional sentence, in our view, uh, should, have been, should have been and w- 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 was available in this case, It doesn't mean that we agree we don't pass judgment on whether this was actually the appropriate one.
0: Yeah and so the example that you gave is actually the example that tipped me over the edge because imagine you have someone who commits an offense when there's a five-year maximum sentence and then the sentencing changes to the availability of a conditional sentence and that person comes forward, like the majority suggests they should. um, They take responsibility, they're charged, they plead guilty, and then sentencing is delayed, and the government increases the punishment to back up to five years.
1: Or worse, to a a minimum. Or to a mandatory
0: minimum sentence. So then
1: it's not just that you have an exposure to a higher sentence. It's all of a sudden, which these minimum sentences were very popular, unfortunately, for a long time this would be oh mind you no you well, then have you the get the benefit, benefit of, of the yeah, lesser yes, of one course, the but lesser then one.
0: but under this example even using the majority's hypothetical the person if we go for the binary would not be eligible for that conditional sentence. Even though they came forward, they accepted responsibility, they were motivated by that directly, which is... you
1: see, that's what the Crown, in this case, at the end said, we worry about that and we would like an interpretation that would say it's not at the time of sentencing, but it's at the time of charge. The court said, well, this has not been argued. (laughs) Well, first of all, this is a moot case anyway. So while you're in the mootness, why not say, let's adjourn, let's hear arguments on, on this point and settle that. But the hint is, the only way to fix that which is a real problem is to use another charter right that's i don't know an equality right something so, else to come biting at this from some other way because or for the court to eventually reverse itself on that
0: and when you're twisting yourself into knots to try to deal with those situations maybe it means that that your binary option is not the, <laughs> not the right that's way right. Right. So, yeah, some of these examples, and I think you can think of examples, uh, you know, you can come up with examples to have two offenders who commit an offense at the same time, and one is treated more leniently or less leniently, depending on, you know, which interpretation you choose. And when it cuts both ways, I don't think it really supports this binary, binary interpretation that the majority comes up with.
1: But, you know, um, I think it will be interesting to see I'm not sure that this will give rise to an uprising and a grassroots movement, but what is at the the root of this case, at the heart of it, which is really not discussed at all by the court, is the treatment in criminal law of historical offenses. And we tend to focus on uh, historic sexual offenses because there's such a history of perfectly understandable non-disclosure for a long time. It's very, it's a very unique type of circumstances. But there have been other historic offenses, uh, uh, war crimes. In the whole of the common law world, there have been virtually no success anywhere, including in Canada, on the very late prosecution of Nazi war criminals. And the reason for that is because our rules of evidence and procedure, including the right to a jury trial for offences punishable by more than five years and so on, were never designed for the law to reach back into time 30 years where the validity of, of uh, human, where human memory becomes increasingly unreliable. and So we have, we, are, we have a system that is very well geared to a relatively speedy disposition of cases. However, we have no statute of limitations. But this is not the norm all over the world. There are lots of countries, including some that have very robust, in my opinion, very sophisticated law, like Germany, for instance, that have scales of statutes of limitation. So this may actually raise the question of what's the problem with this case? So you start with a small provision that could be read two ways, and you realize that you have behind it an entire system that is struggling with going too far back in time. As long as you're looking at, say, a period of 10 years between the commission of the offence and the ultimate conviction, there's not a chance the law of sentencing would have changed three or four times in that period. But if you go back 30 years, as this case, the first offence was in 75. (coughs) I'm not advocating for statutes of limitation, certainly not in sexual offences, because God knows it took long enough for these cases to surface. This is not the time to close the door. But it begs the question, of whether for historic offenses we have appropriate uh, laws. And, and this one, I think, is a really good example of how we struggle.
0: Well, and it's especially hard in in sentencing. I mean, prosecution and actually the trial is one thing because... It's hard wh- enough. I always say to juries that I mean, memories like fine wine don't get better with time. Um, I mean, cases get harder to prosecute, they get harder to defend, evidence degrades, but then sentencing is even harder because in 30 years, someone can change their circumstances, their way of looking at things, um, you know, their personal circumstances can change quite a bit, which can make sentencing difficult. I mean, under the, the Youth Criminal Justice Act, we want to have speedy trials because especially for youth, we want to have sort of the conduct and the punishment close together so that youth can benefit connect the two. Rehabilitation and benefit rehabilitation one thing. Exactly. But The farther we get those apart, even when you're dealing with adults, there's this disconnect between the punishment or the conduct that you're punishing and the circumstances of the offender and the suitability of that punishment as evidenced here.
1: And in fact, again, if we look at, at historic sexual offenses, some of which have taken decades and decades to come to court, the one thing they may pretty well all have in common is that at the time of trial and sentencing, the accused is going to be an old man or an older man with health issues and so on. So what would have been appropriate to punish? In this case, the accused had been between 44, I think, and 55 years old at the time of commission of the offence. Um, what would have been appropriate then? You know, you, you don't want to argue that he should have had the benefit of either the silence of the complainants for all that time or the, the bare negligence of the system all that time on the other hand you have to take the offender as you find him in court in front of you if it's an 82 year old who is in extremely poor health they're going to not reoffend because of oh, medical not, reasons no. and and you're going to have a lot of that which again shows that we have lots of difficulties with historic offences and in a country that has no in countries that have statutes of limitations it either forces the system to move on more quickly uh or you just forego the prosecution altogether. Anyway, this may open up another debate.
0: And I think that that might be what's, what's sort of motivating some of the news coverage that has spun this case a certain way, and maybe motivating some of the arguments as well, is that it's hard to sit back and you know, see or perceive someone benefiting by getting a lesser sentence because they haven't been apprehended for a while. Like, that's hard to stomach.
1: And you certainly don't want a system where the prosecution would want to play games with its charging timing or its sentencing timing to to try to get these two poles uh, to defeat what was available in between. But that's also, I think, highly speculative. If
0: you want to be cynical, I mean, you could say that... Prosecution or police drag their feet on charging and prosecuting because they know that there might be a change in the law and things might be punished more harshly. But this was
1: never the case here, we know. Let's hope it won't be in the future because we know here that, in fact, the Crown in Ontario in particular had argued the position that the defense is arguing here. Everybody had understood that everything any law that had been enforced in between these two polls was available as a form of sentencing, and the Crown even argued for that position in previous cases. So let's just see. I mean, there are not many of these cases. These are historical crimes, so it's not an earth-shattering change in the law, but it's a somewhat startling one, I think, for all the reasons that we've we've discussed.
0: So let's pause our in-depth analysis, and we can hear a brief message from our sponsor, Iman Publishing. This episode is sponsored by Iman Publishing's Criminal Law Series, which features practical texts covering various areas of criminal practice. And I think maybe the best book to talk about now is in the Criminal Law Series, Iman Publishing's book, Sentencing, Principles, and Practice. I'm sorry, Daniel Robitaille and Aaron Wincore, you might have to update your book after this new sentencing case from the Supreme Court. But look, sentencing is Always super hard, it's always super difficult, there are always these types of issues. And coming this month, October 2019, hot off the presses, you can pick up a copy of sentencing principles and practices. Because let's face it, most cases end in a sentencing hearing. We can't win them all. For all listeners, Emon is offering 10% off titles in the series. Just visit emon.ca slash cls and enter code docket10 at checkout. So Louise, looking back at the headline, Supreme Court rules that Canadian judges have been too soft on punishment for 30 years. Accurate?
1: Uh, I think it's a very superficial way of of catching catching the essence of of this case. So
0: maybe a better headline would have been Supreme Court rules that in a small handful of cases, (laughs) the courts have been Maybe too soft on punishing for the last 30 years. But even,
1: I I don't like the too soft on punishing. I think this was the interpretation of a constitutional right that was enshrined in language that is rooted in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, goes back a long time, but has its own legislative history. It's not a question of leniency to the accused. Uh, And in fact, when Justice Martin called it uh, a random baseline punishment plucked from the past, I find that language... A little dismissive uh, towards the interpretation of, a, to characterize the benefit of lesser punishment as a criminal law and constitutionally enshrined right.
0: And so, I mean, we don't need to go over the majority or the minority decision judgment. It's only like a couple of pages long. They basically hit it's... some of the stuff. I mean, Good for you, Justice Karakasannitz. You've, over the last little while, she's been knocking out these, these dissents and doing a really good job. And I was sort of surprised to see Justice Brown in the dissent, which I wouldn't have put him on sort of the expansive interpretation of the charter, but good for him. I guess it just goes to show that unlike the United States, no matter who appoints a Supreme Court justice, you can't uh, you can't accurately predict how they're going to decide a decision, which is a good thing, I think.
1: Well, I've never been of the school that uh, that uh, you know characterizes judges on the basis of perceived ideologies and so on. I think you know, as I said at the beginning, if this were completely self-evident, wouldn't get there. So let's start with the principle that it needs you know some legal skills, uh, dealing with some series of complex arguments uh, follow a persuasive chain of reasoning. I think all the seven of them, I'm sure, gave it their very best shot. The the dissenting opinion has a a sharp rejoinder on some issues, but I don't think went the distance of reconstructing the argument that supports that position. I think so. Which would have required, I think, quite a bit more fleshing out of the idea. It's a rejoinder that I tend to agree with on the language of the statute—it's uh, very again dismissive of this argument that this would be too work, too much work for the parties and the crown. But it's uh, it just stops short of reconstructing the argument to support a provision that may look unduly lenient and unfair in some cases.
0: Did you ever find it hard when you knew that you'd be writing a dissent to like go that? Extra mile, and instead of writing like a ten-page dissent that hits all the points, sort of writing like a fifty-page, like analytical, like much harder dissent to write, because it would seem to me like it. maybe this is why I'm not on the Supreme Court. If I knew that I was in the dissent, I'd find it hard to put in all that extra work.
1: Well, it's first of all, it, it varies a lot as to when and how a dissenting opinion is is written. You know, very often in preparing for the case, you make a lot of notes on the basis of the arguments of the parties and so on. So as you work the case, you have a line of reasoning. If after a conference and so on, and the majority goes in a different direction, uh, you still you have to, to craft your own opinion in part to be true to your own reasoning. But at the same time, you're often compelled to address the points made by, by the majority and vice versa. After the dissenting opinion circulates, you'll often see the, the majority coming back to address some of the points. That's fine. That's fair. What I, Again, in, in this case, I was left a bit on my appetite because I think the, the dissenting opinion um, essentially dissents from the majority, but without a kind of more positive reconstructing of the Fully fledged foundation for what I, in the end, now think is the better interpretation, which is of the kind of global right.
0: I like those cases where you can sort of intuit that maybe the the numbers switched, and you know, oh, the, you the minority would have been the majority. About what courts do? Because <laughs> I love it when both decisions read like they were written to be the majority decision, and then I mean, then you get like a fulsome, like good argument on both sides. But you know,
1: yeah, you're just
0: dreaming. We like to speculate. Dream-
1: you don't
0: know. I don't have any <laughs> inside information at all. Um, well, thanks so much, Louise, for going over this case with us. We might have Emily back at some time oh, in the near well, future. Let's,
1: let's hope so. And it's really interesting that we both got intrigued. It's it's rare that I get pulled back into the intricacies of of a case like this. But I think we both uh, said, "Oh, what do you think?" And we just had to.
0: I know and you're the one that brought it up and right after you brought up doing a podcast I got a message from someone saying I can't wait till this election's over so we can have more podcasts with Emily back so I don't know if that okay, means okay well next
1: time it'll be her I'm not gonna certainly not gonna do that I don't every know, time if some headline triggers my interest
0: and when Emily wins I don't know how much time she'll have for a podcast maybe I can sign you up for permanent co-hosting duties you could try anyway thanks a lot sure see you Pick guys bye Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com or you can subscribe to The Docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman, and you'd follow me on Twitter at mspratt. Thanks for listening. You can't prove
1: it, oh, oh. You got nothing legit.